Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. I'm going a bit off script today, and I'm delving into a topic that affects all women, not just those who are married or in relationships, by talking to Jessica Valenti, author of the new memoir, Sex Object. Jessica has been a leading feminist voice for more than a decade as the founder of Feministing.com and author of several books, including Full Frontal Feminism. In Sex Object, she opens up for the first time about her personal experiences with misogyny and sexual harassment and poses the question, what do women and girls lose when they grow up believing that objectification is unremarkable and even expected? Jessica is also a columnist for The Guardian U.S., and she's on the show today to discuss her experiences with in-person and online sexual harassment, why humor isn't always the best way to navigate a sexist culture, and how having a daughter has changed her views on all of this. Hi, Jess. Hi, thanks for having me on. So you begin the book with something of a disclaimer. You say that the term sex object is not a compliment. Why did you feel the need to get that out of the way? Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I knew that when I titled the book Sex Object, there would be a sort of superficial but immediate backlash of, well, you're not, you know, who do you think you are? You're not good looking enough to to call yourself a sex object because we do have this sort of idea that that's a compliment, right? That that, but of course it's not. Being being a thing is not a compliment. Um, being dehumanized is is not a compliment. And as expected, that was uh, a response that I got when the, when the title and the and the cover of the book was was revealed before the book actually came out. So it was it was a little bit of of preempting that sort of harassment. Um, but I also wanted to to set the tone for a conversation about how this stuff is not okay. This stuff d- does not feel good. It's, it's not a compliment when you get sexually harassed um, because I, I think that it, it often is set up as such. So you've been writing about feminism for years, as I said in the introduction, and you've tackled a lot of topics from a political point of view or even an advocacy point of view. Mm-hmm. Why with this book did you decide to turn the lens on yourself and put yourself out there? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, with all of my writing, um, I've, I've had some personal stuff come out and made that connection. I think a lot of feminist writers do that. The personal is political, right? Right. But, you know, it, it actually wasn't a, a deliberate and conscious decision at first. I, I started to write these essays, and some of which ended up in the book, sort of for myself and as, and, and as a catharsis I, as I was thinking about a lot of these issues. Um, and I sort of realized halfway through, oh, this is a book. Like I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, a memoir that's very much about sex, uh, sexual objectification. Um, so it wasn't a, a conscious decision at first, which I think ended up being a, a good thing because I think if I had started out with the decision of, of writing about this, I don't know that I would have been uh, as forthcoming um, about, about everything because it's sort of easier to, to write about this stuff when you don't necessarily think about people reading it. So you, you're very honest about your not very great relationships that you mm-hmm. were in before you got married. You're honest about abortion. You're honest about cocaine use. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of things here that one wonders, or I wondered, I guess, what felt necessary about including all of it. And I'm not right. suggesting that that's not 
that wasn't a good thing to do. I'm just, I was sort of thinking about myself and wondering when you're writing a book like this, how do you decide what to include and what not to include? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was difficult. I think (laughs) it sort of felt like whatever felt like the hardest to include or what, uh, when I thought about people reading it, if it made me feel like I was going to throw up, it felt like it was probably a good (laughs) idea to include, you know, I mean, the the stuff that some of the stuff that was that was the most difficult the most unflattering you know the drug use for example it was important it was you know it was an important part of who I was but it was an important part of the way that sexism impacted me you know I don't know that we talk enough about the way that that women self-medicate right and how that can be related to the sexism they face, maybe not in a conscious and, and obvious way always, but I do think that there's a connection. You write in chapter one, along these lines, you say, somewhere along the way, I started to care more about what men thought of me than my own health and happiness, because doing mm-hmm. so was just easier. It was. It's just easier. If you if you make the decision to sort of go along with the role that's been set out for you, that's a much easier road to take. And and it also, I think, and you know, that's why I also write in the book, you know, if I was going to be a, a sex object, I decided I was going to be the sex object, the best sex, sex <laughs> object I could be. You know, it's almost a way of like getting some power back in a situation where you don't feel like you have a lot of power. If, you know, if this is the, the place that you are allotted some power, then you're going to take it and you're going to use that the, the best way that you can. So in some ways, I think that that's a survival technique that a, that a lot of women you know, negotiate and use. Some of the stories that you recount in the book happened to you when you were fairly young. And mm-hmm. one of the instances that you recount, which I, to me was maybe the most salient example or anecdote in the whole book and that kind of stayed with me was the experience you had, um, I think, in middle school when you were on the Mm -hmm. subway and you were sort of listening to your Walkman, minding your own business, being a teenage girl. And unbeknownst to you, a man on the subway ejaculated into the back of your jeans. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until you got off the train and sort of discovered that you were all wet that you realized what had happened. Yeah. How did those experiences, and you, you that's not the only one you, you talk mm-hmm. about, but how did those experiences shape you as a woman and as a feminist? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that I gave a lot of thought to, to how experiences like that made me a feminist in, in, until I wrote this book. Um, but feminism certainly was something that, that gave me a language to describe all of these things that had happened. And in terms of who, how it made me who I am, that's part of what I was trying to explore and get at in the book. And I don't know that I have an answer for it. And that's what's so difficult, right? Is that it's not necessarily one experience or, or one incident. It's the cumulative impact of these sort of, I mean, I hate to call them ordinary, but they are ordinary because they are so common, you know, aggressions or the, these ordinary violations what does that do to who we are? How does that change, you know, who we will become? And I think it had a tremendous impact on me. And from from what I've heard from from other women and, and young women, as as the book has been out for a, a little bit, it's made a tremendous impact on them as well. Another incident you talk about is mm-hmm. a high school incident where a teacher at your high school gave you an A 
after asking you to give him a hug and the implication being that if you hugged him, you would get the A. To what extent did you understand this at the time to be a -hmm. form of harassment or did you not understand that? And was this something else that came to you later as you were thinking about your past? It came to me later. I didn't understand it as that at all. I mean, I think at the time, and this was a pretty common ethos among, among me and my friends. And, and there were a, a few teachers at our school who were, who were pretty inappropriate with, with young women. We thought we, we you know, we went to a pretty pr- prestigious high school and we felt like we were really smart and sophisticated, you know, young New Yorkers. And we were so chic and all of this sort of stuff. And so it almost felt like we were too smart for it all. You know, like, Oh, we were getting one over um, on a teacher. But of course, when I think back on those incidents and, and, and that one in particular, you know, the reason I started, I, I cut that class for almost the entire semester um, and he gave me an A after I gave him a hug. And the reason I started cutting the class was because of a comment he made about something that I was wearing and, and the way I looked and, and something that I was wearing. Of course, that <laughs> impacted me, right? Like, of course, on some sort of like visceral internal level, I, I realized that that was wrong and it made me uncomfortable enough that I didn't go back to class. But at the time, you, I, I think that it's easier, and again, you want to reclaim some of that power, I think that it's easier to say like, oh yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just like a badass teen who's cutting class and it has nothing to do with the fact that this teacher said something inappropriate to me. Right. And oh, oh, isn't it funny that I got this old teacher to give me, you know, to give me a 95 in the class just by giving him a hug, ha ha ha, even though, you know, it, it wasn't funny, it was terrible. Something that I've heard from men over the years in discussions that I've had about feminism, about sexual harassment, and about these lines that get crossed Mm. and that make women feel icky, for lack of a better word, is men pose the question, how do you know or how do I know when what I'm about to say is going to be interpreted as icky or as a compliment? Mm. Mm. What do you say to... Men. <laughs> all I mean, men. I think, yeah, all men. I tend to think that if they're asking themselves that question, the chances of them saying something icky are very, very low, <laughs> right? I tend to think that like the, the vast majority of, of harassment happens by people who are doing it quite deliberately, um, who are doing it to make you feel uncomfortable, to exert uh, power and control and and know that very very consciously. So I think that you know, if you're asking that question, you're you're already on like the 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 right path. I have heard that, like I've heard from guy friends, you know, when specifically in terms of street harassment, saying, well, well, what's the appropriate way, for example, that I could approach a a woman on the street if I think that she's beautiful and I want to take her for a drink? And that's a real like that's a, a hard thing when women you know, are in public spaces, it doesn't always feel safe. And it can feel sort of odd if a, if a person comes up to you who's a stranger. And so I don't know what the, the right answer is, but I'm, you know, obviously it's not feeling entitled to her time. It's, it's going up and saying, hello, if you'd like to talk to me, that's fine. If not, you know, take her, take her signals and, and walk away. But I think in the broader sense, the more that men can do to make public spaces um, in particular safer for women the better it will be for them in the long run because women won't feel so on guard. 
To talk a little bit more about the kind of harassment that is very intentional, an amazing statistic is that a study by The Guardian, the newspaper that you write for, they looked at 1.4 million comments that had been blocked by their moderators since 1999, and they found that you were the most harassed contributor on their site. Yes, Uh, I'm number one. (laughs) You published some of these comments and emails that you've received in the back Mm -hmm. of your book with absolutely no commentary. And I just want to read a couple of the ones that I can read on the air just because to give listeners a taste. One of them, and this is just a really a random sample, do my dishes and clean my house. Feminists remind me of little girls who cry because they didn't get their way. If you wanted to be important, you should have been born with a penis. This is a random sampling of just three of the millions of comments that you have received over the years. And how do you function? (laughs) Um, How does your psyche survive with this onslaught? And how do you not let it break you? Xanax helps, right? right? Therapy. (laughs) I mean, I I say it jokingly, but that's, that's also true. Like it has taken a tremendous toll on me. And there, there is, there is a mental health impact for hearing this sort of stuff day in, day out for years. I mean, listen, like I'm very fortunate. What what makes it easier for me to do right now, and not everyone is this lucky, certainly not all writers, is, you know, if I quit Twitter tomorrow, right, I would still have a job. I, you know, I could still function, I could still work um, and probably remove myself from, from online spaces quite a bit. Not everyone has the privilege to do that. A lot of people who are writers need to have a social media presence. And that said, you know, I shouldn't have to leave, right? Like, and, and this is something that I've heard a lot, like, oh, if you're getting harassed, like, why not just don't go on Twitter? That That's sort of the equivalent of saying, like, if you don't want to get um, cat calls don't don't walk on the street. The internet is the new public space. So I really deal with it by having a, a wonderful support system online and off. You know, my my husband is really supportive and incredible and, and talks me through a lot of this harassment. But it is something that I worry about and think about quite a lot. Again, not as much for myself anymore. I do wonder what it, what it's all done to me. And that's what the book is about. But in terms of online harassment specifically, I think a lot about future writers, right? And mm-hmm. I, I hear a lot from young women who say, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I, I was going to be a feminist. I was going to do all this stuff. But then I saw the harassment you got and I decided, I decided not to. And it makes me think about all of you know the amazing talent we're missing out on because we haven't figured out a way to deal with this stuff yet. One review, I believe, of your mm. book used the word draining to describe mm. it as if the, you know, the number of accounts that you were giving and the fact that you were detailing this lifetime of various kinds of harassment was kind of a slog to get through. Yeah. How do you respond to that? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, the first essay that I wrote for this book, which is the first essay in the book, when my husband first read it before I knew it was going to be a book, he was like, God, he's like, he's like, it just felt really punishing, you know? And I said, good. Right. It's, it's supposed to, it's supposed to feel punishing. That's the, you know, that's the point. I did want the, the tone of the book. Um, it's not an easy book to get through. And I've heard that from a lot of people and but I wanted the, the tone of the book to reflect the, the tone of a lot of women's lives. And so that feels appropriate to me. Um, and, I, and I am sort of against this idea that, that feminist books or feminism 
always needs to be uplifting, right? Right, or always needs to be enthusiastic, or have a silver lining, or have like a, a you know that you come away with, you know, oh, what's the action item? What are we doing? You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. it just sucks. Sometimes it's just terrible and that's okay. Well, I think what I came away from it with was, I wouldn't have used the word draining, but what Mm -hmm. I realized was that it's, it's like a slow burn. Like there is burnout that you describe that is kind of slowly built throughout the narrative and goes, you know, through your childhood to adolescence, to adulthood, to being a mother, to being a professional feminist, that I think, um, for me at least, awakened this idea that I, I, I felt that I had un, I was uncovering a lot of this stuff that had happened to me that honestly I had not even thought was that extraordinary, as you said right. before. So yeah, Maybe not draining, but the burnout is really clear. Right. And I think a lot of people feel that, right? A lot of, and and the other thing is putting sort of a happy face on it, always feeling the need to to have that silver lining. That's exhausting too, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, there's almost something like a little, it can feel like a relief to just be like, this is terrible. And I'm just going to sit with that for a minute. In the same time, you know, you talk about the feminism that's popular right now mm-hmm. is using a lot of humor. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is Amy Schumer, sure. Tina Fey. There's, you know, these incredibly gifted feminist comedians who have, you know, populated our popular culture for the last few years and in mm-hmm. many ways have brought feminism to entirely new audiences. What What's your feeling about that kind sure. of humorous, you know, using humor as a as a device and as a political device, really? Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredibly important and necessary. And I built, you know, the very early part of my career on that idea. When I started blogging, you know, feministing was formed with like a pretty like snarky, sarcastic, um, humorous voice. And and the idea was this idea of accessibility and, and getting more people interested in feminism by making it funny, making, you know, like drawing people in. And I do think that that continues to be a really, you know, important political tool. Right now, though, I think we're in this really interesting and important feminist moment culturally where we are wielding so much power. You know, so many people are talking about feminism. We have drawn the people in, right? Like we did it. Like a lot of people are talking about feminism. So now, you know, now that we have people's attention, we don't have to be funny all the time, right? Like we can sort of dig deeper into it. And I think that that's just as important. So you have a young daughter and you write the book for her. And I think your niece, who's also very young. What do you think the world that they're going to inhabit looks like when it comes to objectification and feminism? What do you hope for your daughter? And what do you fear? I mean, I fear so much. And that's, you know, in part why I wrote the book. Um, But for as much fear as I have, I do have a lot of a lot of hope. I do think the world will look very different for her. I hope I I really do. I mean, I, when I see like the, the activism that young women are doing around these issues and the thinking that they're doing, you know, around dress codes at their school or, you know, uh, advertisements, young women are thinking about this stuff in a really critical way. And so I do have a a lot of hope, but it is going to, it's going to take more work. It's going to take more women, um, you know, in leadership roles at TV shows, you know, in the writer's room in, uh, you know, directing movies. Like we, we need that representation, as part of that cultural shift. 
But despite the tone of the book, I, I actually am an optimist. And so I do, <laughs> I, I do think that the world will, will look different for them. Because this is a podcast largely about marriage, I want to ask you, how does the exhaustion, the slog, the mm. years of being objectified, dealing with offline, online harassment, how does it affect your marriage? And what sure. do you bring? In my own marriage, I find that I often come to discussions with huge chip on my shoulder that I don't sure. realize is even there and really isn't my husband's fault, but it is mm. the like the years and years of having my backup about sure. this stuff. And I wonder how you and your husband deal with that. Sure. I mean, it, it helps that, that, you know, Andrew's a feminist and he's been thinking about these issues, um, you know, from before I met him. So, so that's great and wonderful. And, um, but it, it does take a toll, right? Like when you're, when you have to go to your partner for support, for stuff like this, that's, that's emotionally draining for him as well. Right. And it, and it hurts him. And I think that, you know, the other thing is it can be hard when you, when you've spent the day, like being called a cunt, right. Or, or getting, um, rape threats, it's hard to like go cuddle with your husband at night. <laughs> as you said, like you have your backup, you're feeling pretty raw. You're not feeling like, great about being sexually objectified and and harassed all day long so it can it can be hard to to feel close with someone like luckily we've we've been able to to sort of navigate that but it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of conversations and that's frustrating and and too bad one thing i've heard women talk a lot about write about and um this is feminist writers as well, is this idea that after a lifetime of harassment and objectification, I wonder, sometimes it's weird when you're no longer that object of um, objectification, that like we get to a certain age and there's that invisibility that sets in where all of a sudden, you know, there was a point in my life when I had small children where walking down the street, like all of a sudden became extremely different and safe. And it was a weird feeling. It wasn't good or bad. It was just like, Mm -hmm. wow, I have crossed some imaginary line here and the world sees me differently. Have you dealt with that? Oh, a hundred percent. And I wrote about this and it's such a difficult thing to, to talk about or to articulate because as you said, it's not like necessarily good or bad. Like there's some parts of it are great. Like I love, I don't really get sexually harassed on the street anymore. And that's wonderful. I don't, you know, (laughs) I don't miss that, but it's a really strange thing when you've been taught that so much of your worth and value lies in your ability to be sexually attractive to men. When you start to become invisible to them in public spaces, it feels really strange and it can feel bad. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that but it it's a really weird it's a really weird time yeah and i had the same thing it was when you know when i had Layla, i think after i turned 35 it was like this sort of like silencing <laughs> of it in 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 public spaces that doesn't con- concern me like again like very happy not to be sexually harassed on the street anymore but it is a weird thing to be made invisible as you get older as a, you know, in pop culture, as a sexual person, all of these things, it's, it's like you go from being an object that's being looked at all the time 
to, to being completely transparent. The book's been out for a bit. I wonder, just as we wrap up, if there's if there any have there been any particularly surprising responses mm. to the book, and what what have those been? I'm sure there was a lot of predictable sure. responses. That yeah, you got. Um, <laughs> but no, honestly, the, the 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 one thing that surprised me a bit, and in a, in a wonderful way, is how many men read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard from more men about this book than I've heard from uh, with any of my previous work. And that was great, you know, it, and it actually surprised me because I felt like, it, you know, if anything, this was the book that, that would, would mostly appeal to women. But a, a lot of men read it and, and wrote me really great and nice emails. So that's always nice. That's great. Jessica Valenti, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions, comments, and suggestions for topics and guests at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at itunes.com slash panoply or at panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Thank you.